Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's best murder she wrote podcast. I'm your host, Bridget Keys, And I'm your co-host, TJ West. And after setting up that we're the world's best, I feel like we have a lot of pressure now to talk about this week's episode, Paint Me a Murder. Teach it's your turn to give the episode summary. You want to do it? I will be happy to. So in this episode, Jessica goes to an unnamed Mediterranean island where she reconnects with her artist friend, but of course, played by Cesar Ribeiro, the, one of the greatest Latin lover icons in the history of cinema. And unfortunately, given that he's the big name, he has to die this week <laughs> with an arrow shot, no less, which is a particularly brutal way to, to go if you're, you know, a septuagenarian painter living on a nice paradise in the Mediterranean. So, of course, you know, there is an abundance of suspects, not the least of which is his son. But as it turns out, it's actually the owner of the art museum where a lot of his work is being displayed, who has killed him in an attempt to drive up the value because he's apparently broke because... The art world is suffering in the 80s or something and he'd been conspiring with another person who faked a heart attack so there's a whole bunch of stuff going on but the long story short is that the murderer is the art dealer essentially who was played by Stuart Granger speaking of Hollywood folk so Jessica solves it the end great I want to circle back to something you said because uh, you called him a septuagenarian and I think before we move any further with this episode, we need to address the fact that he's actually only turning 60, which I wrote in all caps and mm. underlined because, my God, 60 years old is so different in 2022 than it is in 1985, isn't it? It is. I mean, this I'm, guy's I... retiring. We're having this big party as if his life is over and his career is over. It's totally bonkers. He's only 60. I mean, he also looks... Like, I think age looks different. Like, 60 looks different in 2022 than it did in 1985. Oh, yeah. Like, I think that's something that comes up a lot. As and I mean, he's also, in several years later, in The Golden Girls, where he looks pretty much the same. So it's, it's like, once Cesar Romero reached 60, he just stopped aging. But I do think that you're right, that there is something different about the way that aging works and how we perceive aging in certain life stages, you know, 30, almost 40 years later. That I think is really yeah. interesting. And I find it very interesting anytime I watch TV from this period of just how differently that age perceived people in their 60s to be. Like, cause you, as you yeah. say, like you were like, that was the twilight of your life, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Which is really interesting, actually, as a contrast to what we know about Jessica, who's entering this new sort of renaissance in her life as a woman nearing 60. Um, but and anyway, out he's only 60, you guys. This is totally crazy. And I mean, Jessica's turning out books. She has yet another one um, as the episode begins. Like, he's referencing the new book that she has. It's like, good God, this woman is like, you know, I, I don't know, she like a machine when it comes to producing 
books. Yeah, I just don't even buy that because she's never at home. She's never near her typewriter. <laughs> she's always jaunting around the planet, um, solving mysteries. Like, when exactly is she doing this writing? I smell a ghostwriter at this point. <laughs> well, when you're JV, she's doing a James Patterson method, I suppose. Like, you know, yeah. franchising out the writing. This is what Grady's real job is since he keeps getting fired from other things. He's the ghostwriter. And arrested. <laughs> Anyway, uh, we should talk more about this episode. So, um, as you said, we have Cesar Romero. We also have Judy Geeson. She of Two Star With Love fame. Mm. We have Robert Goulet, who was just like a really fun 1980s. Uh, I feel like he was in every show I loved in the 1980s and talked about. I mean, he um, was like the epitome of dashing masculinity, I suppose. <laughs> and then, um, well, we have lots of cool people. Anyway. We have Stuart Granger, who's, you know, pretty much... Well, I mean, I wouldn't say he's like an A-list star from the from the fifties, but he's someone that people knew. Like he had a sort of established career mm-hmm. in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just wasn't one of those people who's particularly memorable. But you know, he's dashing enough, I suppose. He was quite handsome when he was young. That's all I care about. <laughs> um, or you care about how dashing they are when they're supposedly sixty? Because TJ was texting I mean, me about how hot he thought Caesar Romero was. He's hot. Like, I mean, come on now. I mean, I, well, to be clear, I have lusted after him ever since I saw him as uh, Tony Delvecchio in The Golden Girls, where he's Sophia's, like, one-episode beau. And as I said to Bridget, I wouldn't mind looking over at the night table and seeing his gl- teeth in a glass next to mine. Okay, so for me, he will always be the Joker in 1966 Batman. Mm. Um because I absolutely love that show. I think it is so much smarter than people give it credit for. And so I cannot take him seriously as like a romantic hero. He's the Joker. Oh, see, I've, I mean, I saw him in uh, a John Wayne movie called uh, Donovan's Reef, where he plays the governor of some unnamed Polynesian island, I believe. And I thought he was very dashing and handsome. So I've always had a thing for him. Would it kill your thing for him if I told you he was a very active Republican who campaigned for Reagan? No, but he was also a closeted homosexual, so... Unconfirmed. Ro- well, un- he was the confirmed, confirmed bachelor. bachelor. <laughs> right, which we all know what that means in classical and, and Hollywood speech. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, Rock Hudson was also a Republican. So, and also, so, you know. That's true. Rock Hudson, there's a very famous photo uh, the same year that he died of AIDS, which Reagan denied, of Rock Hudson with Nancy and Ronald Reagan. I have no morals, dear, so it doesn't matter to me that he's a Republican. I still find <laughs> At some point, we'll talk so. about the actual episode. I promise. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what strikes me. I mean, like, I, when I said to you in the pregame, like, it's a very good episode, and I very much enjoyed it. And I think it's a very, as we call them, like, the bread and butter episode. Like, there's not a lot of fancy doodads or fancy, like, plot twists. It's just pretty much a, a cut-and-dry, mm-hmm. established formula episode and i think that's its strength is that it doesn't like try to do anything i mean the the doodads come in its setting because it's in the sort of paradisical you know mediterranean island and the fanciness of the art i think those are what make it an interesting episode but plot wise it's pretty you know cut and dry as far it's as pretty straightforward right yeah this guy is a wealthy artist he's gathered his friends onto his private island for a 60th birthday uh, and he's ultimately murdered because his art will be more valuable if he's dead, right? And right. and what I love about it is that sort of cozy mystery aspect where we're cloistered away, we're on this mm-hmm. island, so the murderer has to be one of these people, right? It gives um, and then there were none vibes, mm-hmm. right? Like someone on the island has to be doing this, and one by one we're picking people off, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
It also, I think there's a, a lovely moment. The first attempt on Diego's life happens at night. He's out on the terrace playing his guitar, and someone pushes a, 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 a sort of a cement urn. urn vase thing from the top of the house off at him. And that really gives me um, the Lady Vanishes vibes. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of like Christie references in this episode that I really appreciate as a Christie fan. Mm-hmm. No, I really like that too. And I agree with you that it's kind of, it's paradoxically like very open because obviously, you know, it's the, the fancy island setting, but also slightly claustrophobic because, you know, as you say, you have this very limited set of suspects and we know that it has to be one of them. And so I think that gives it a certain kind of, uh, you know, tight woven feel and mm-hmm. you, that, you know, Jessica picks up on too. Yeah. Um... So Jessica quietly investigates. I don't know where to go now because like that's that's good stuff. Um, so Jessica quietly investigates, and there's another guy she's quietly investigating with. Right. Let's yes. Let's talk about the bond with the private investigator, which is one of it's evocative of you know her relationship with the Russian guy who was played by William Conrad. You know, it's evocative of the the Jewish detective that she met several episodes back. I I kind of love those episodes the most. I love when we get Jessica, sort of having a a friendly kind of rivalry with these other legal figures that's not antagonistic but you know it's, it's kind of cordial and i really really enjoy that i guess it's not quite but it kind of gives me poirot hastings vibes maybe because i just oh. watched some poirot hastings um, or poirot jap like i think that that's what one of the, the key pairings that i really enjoy hmm i yeah i I can see that. I guess I can see that. I think it, it's also nice just to give her um, someone to play off of because, mm-hmm. especially in a, an episode like this, there aren't police, right? Because we're cloistered away on the island. The radio's been destroyed. All right, of course, because of course that's a gimmick if you're on an island. Mm-hmm. So we have to wait uh, to contact the police and we have to wait for the boat that comes every morning so we can tell them we're having trouble. And so in the meantime, like there is no authority, mm-hmm. right? So Jessica sort of has to fulfill that role. So I think it's really nice to have another character who's the voice of reason that she can be investigating with with uh, it makes it seem less dangerous for her on the one hand and it also um i think it just helps the investigation along to have two characters doing it mm-hmm. and they can talk about like which of the other people do they suspect there were a couple of parts of that investigation though that i thought were um, a little bit strange like so the character played by robert goulet is willard uh to mm-hmm. americans but everyone in the episode of course is not american and so they call him willard uh TJ is shaking his head. And um, he, oh, at one point, has a heart attack, and he's helicoptered off the island right as... Uh, well, it's not right as Jessica arrives. I guess it's the next day. Yeah. And, um, and, and so the question was whether he tried to kill Diego, whether the attempt was, his, was he responsible. And so he faked the heart attack to get away so he wouldn't get caught. Um, but, of course, Diego ends up dead anyway, so we think, oh, maybe it wasn't him. But Jessica has this suspicion that the heart attack was all faked as mm-hmm. part of, you know, Willard's strategy to get off the island. And there's this great moment where she's, like, raking the beach, like, literally with a rake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Henry comes and he's like, what What are you doing? And she's like, I'm convinced Willard had a heart attack. I'm convinced he took drugs to fake the heart attack. And I'm convinced that if I rake this sand, I will find remnants of the capsule of the drugs that he took to fake the heart attack. And then indeed, there, it's right there. And mm-hmm. it contains, she smells it, and it contains exactly the drugs she suspected he took. Mm-hmm. I think that's a little bit 
a little bit much, Teach. It is a little bit much. And I mean, as much as I enjoyed this episode, there were, I agree with you, there were some things that didn't make a lot of sense, both in terms of the investigation, but also just how, how does an artist get enough money to basically buy an island in the Mediterranean? Like, what, who is he, Picasso? Like, I mean. Yes, he's supposed to be, right? I mean, he's, he's supposed to be Spanish. He's supposed to be be really famous. I'm actually quite hostile to the world of art. Like, I think the idea of like, (laughs) artists making millions from whatever rather ridiculous <laughs> but anyway I digress I don't mean no to you don't it. digress because we do get a little bit of shades of that I mean that's part of the tension of the episode right that Willard for example says that he's just bought a new Diego painting mm-hmm. but everyone knew he was broke uh, so how did he buy the painting right so that was suspicious um, as we said Diego was ultimately killed for the value of his art so there's a, a sense that um, the worth of art is always necessarily will increase after someone dies, right? Um, that's the assumption that we're going on if we're going to kill the guy for his paintings. But then one of his really good friends that he's invited here is totally broke, mm-hmm. and she's committed her life to a nonprofit. She doesn't own any of his paintings. She can't afford art. So I think there's the episode actually has some really interesting uh, critiques of the art world it, it, built into the narrative. Right. And of course, the whole motive for the for the plot is that, you know, even an art collector who owns a, you know, what is clearly a pretty well established and respected gallery is himself completely broke. And he admits as much that like, you know, the world of the art, the arts is kind of impoverished in the 80s. Which is well, it, I mean, it's more that it's tempestuous, right? That right, yeah. He, he says there's a tasteless public uh, and that the value of your collection increases and decreases based on the whims of that public, mm-hmm. right? Who do they think is hot today? Who don't they? And so um, that's actually one of the gripes I have because it, it doesn't quite add up then that killing Diego would logically make the art worth more because if the public is tasteless and whimsical in those tastes right Mm -hmm. then like how do you know that Kelly Diego is going to pay off but but I mean it's interesting then that you know we keep talking about this and because it's a a conceit that comes up elsewhere like I'm thinking not to bring everything back to the Golden Girls but it is there is a significant episode that's also all about an artist dying and driving up the value of their art like that's it's just interesting that that's such a conceit in 80s TV that you know as you say we have this uncertain world of art and one way of getting some kind of stability as to, you know, either murder or take, or just kind of be complicit in someone's death. Yeah, it seems like that's the only certainty with the value of the works, right? It's uncertain whether they'll increase or decrease uh, unless the artist is dead. That seems Mm -hmm. to be the only certainty. I mean, we could call this, all this the death of the author. (sighs) Don't go there because that's too much to explain. (laughs) Um, But, you know, so so Judy Jason's character, Elaine, as I said, she works for a nonprofit and she is doing things to, I think, feed children in Africa, we're sort of vaguely told, right? Mm -hmm. Can we talk about the fact that Diego finally gifts her a painting? He says it's his birthday and most people receive gifts, but on his birthday, he wants to give someone a gift. So he's going to give her, who could never afford his work, a painting. Mm Mm-hmm. And she says, I'm going to sell it and I'll use it for my nonprofit. And um, the picture that he gives her, TJ, can we please talk about this horrible, horrible painting that he gives her? Yes. I mean, do you want to elaborate why you think it's horrible? Well, it's uh, so she, you know, so she works to feed children in Africa. We don't know where in Africa because, of course, Africa is always conflated to, you know, one singular place. Uh, And the painting is of these horribly emaciated black bodies. 
Um, and I, I, I don't really get what this painting is trying to accomplish. It feels very racist and awful to me, but I think it's supposed to be showing perhaps? pain to, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, evoke empathy. That's what I would guess. It's yes. horrible. I mean, but it is, it's one of those moments, too, where it's like, wow, this is so 80s. You know, that sort of the ubiquity <laughs> of emaciated black bodies in 80s TV. And I'm not just talking about, like, dramatically speaking. I'm talking, like, you know, all the commercials of the 80s where you had, like, World Aid and all that Well, stuff. yeah, I mean, this is, you know, like, contemporaneous to, like, We Are the World and, like, feeding mm-hmm. starving children and, and that, like, legitimate hunger. Um, but, that, you know, of course, this hunger campaigns are still going on. There's still starving sure. people. Yeah, like, exactly. As there are in the United States, right? Well, that's what also strikes me about this episode is just how many, like, obviously there's the murder, but that occupies such a, a relatively small place in amongst all these other plot threads that don't really go anywhere, <laughs> but they are nevertheless interesting. Like, there's the one character who's, what is it, a Bosnian or, is that, or, or some kind of Eastern European. Oh, Stefan Conrad. Yeah. The, like, uh, so Serbian. He's, he, he's the sort of the tenant who lives in yeah. the, like, the back house and is in love with Diego's wife. Right. It ends up being like pursued by the secret police, and like, yeah, it's it's just such a crazy throwaway. Like in any other episode, that would be a key part of the of the story, but in this, it's just like, oh, okay, and then we move. Like I don't know, it just felt like they needed to pad out what is a relatively lean story with a bunch mm. of you know, uh, as I said, plot threads that don't go anywhere, but add texture. I'm not saying they're pointless or that I don't like them. It's yeah. just they they don't seem to have much to do with the actual murder itself, which is relatively straightforward. Well, that's what I was going to say. To me, they provide uh, like rich characterization. They make our suspect pool so much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, why is Stefan trying to escape? Why did he break the radio? What's you know what's his story? Um, did he kill Diego because he's so in love with Margot? Did they collude together to kill Diego? Right. Mm-hmm. I think the other another interesting thing for me was that we have Belle, uh, Diego's first wife, and Margot, his current wife, and they're both at the party. And there's this moment where. Uh, somebody is like, I don't really get how you guys all do this. And Diego's like, love is love and love grows. And it's this whole like sort of thing of like, we can all be friends and, and appreciate each other, even though Belle and I aren't married. Uh, and it seems very progressive and very open minded and liberal. And then um, actually, we find out like, no, actually, Belle's really miserable with this arrangement. Like, she's totally still in love with Diego. And he's left mm-hmm. her for a younger woman. I know. Yeah. Yeah, and so that adds an interesting gloss then about, you know, Diego being the sort of, you know, the as we've already seen through several episodes, these the male, you know, patriarch who has to die in the course of the episode. And, you know, I think that Diego, relatively speaking, at least compared to some of the assholes that we've seen over the course of this series, is still, if not morally questionable, at the very least, someone that has done some questionable things. It's, it reminds me of, of, you know, what's his name, who, you know, Jessica befriended but yeah. was apparently a tyrannical monster to his daughters. Like, it's, again, one of those moments where, like, there's a sense that people are far more complicated and contradictory than they appear on the surface. Like, you know, and I I like that, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think we're supposed to see him as uh, really much more sympathetic than many of the rich guys who've died in previous episodes. Much more sympathetic. He runs an art class for little children, right? He, oh, he loves his ex-wife. You know, he's gifting someone with a painting that's worth millions of dollars. Um, but I think you're right. Like, under the surface, actually, there's a, a little bit more pernicious mm-hmm. to him than this sort of gentle, all-loving guy that um, he presents as. 
Which made me wonder, like, how, how does Jessica even know this guy in the first place? Well, yeah, that's what I was also wondering. <laughs> but I mean, to just elaborate on that for a moment, I actually, that's one of the things I love about Murder, She Wrote, and really about a lot of television that people don't always, I think, give, I mean, I know that scholars do, but generally, like, lay people don't always recognize, is, like, the real way that television, like Murder, She Wrote, or The Golden Girls, kind of really show you how really complicated people are like i think that there's an assumption among some people that television works with archetypes that they're you know the characterization is flat or whatever but i think that cases like diego show us that you know even people that we seem to like like and respect are far more riddled with inconsistencies than we might like and i think that people sometimes are uncomfortable with that and they you know People want the world to be broken down into order and nicely neat organized packages. But I think that that's one of the great strengths of British Road is its characterization is so rich and complex. Mm-hmm. It's been something that's on my mind a lot lately as I, as I do this deep dive into TV and into network TV in particular. Yeah. Where do you want to go next? For- well, let's talk about the murder itself, because I referenced when I did my summary, like the brutality of it, because normally like, you know, in Murder, She Wrote, the murders are... Are relatively like they're not pleasant by any stretch but you know it's not they're not usually brutal yeah well brutal as i said like but yeah yeah so so we so as i said earlier the first attempt on his life was someone trying to push a vase off onto him while he's strolling the terrace uh and that obviously didn't work the second attempt is that he's shot with a crossbow early in the morning Right. So, I mean, I have all sorts of questions. Like, why a crossbow? Like, of all the methods to choose... Because the crossbow was on the wall. It was easily accessible. Which is my question. Why does this beautiful Mediterranean villa have a wall with crossbows and knives and, like, these really horrible weapons, like, just stuck to the wall? Well, yes. I mean, because that's the thing that you collect if you're a fabulously wealthy male artist, I suppose. You know, signs of your virility and all that. Gross. Well, look what happened. Yes, exactly. I don't know. It just, I I was just like, wow. You know, you're supposedly this guy's friend and collaborator, and then you shoot him with a freaking crossbow? Like, yeah. It's an agonizing way to die. I don't know. It just struck me as particularly horrible. It is an agonizing way to die. Weirdly, uh, Jessica's walking along... uh, and arrives to find finds him like just seconds after it happens, but he's already dead. Right. Uh, so apparently, it's a really quick way to die. Um, sure. <laughs> a quick. The other thing is, I guess if we're thinking about Sir John the Killer, um, who is Diego's really good friend, you know, I guess at, at least it's a distant mm-hmm. way of murdering someone. Yeah. It would be so much harder to murder someone you love and are close to, face to face. That's true. Yeah, I like that. That's a, I think that's a good interpretation, that there is a certain kind of distance that a crossbow from a cliff enables you to have a sense of uh, distanciation from this horrible act that you're yeah. committing. I like that. I think it's a really interesting read on his character and what he's doing and why, you know. Of course, like all murder mysteries, it raises the question, though, um, and this is a necessary plot hole in all murder mysteries, but why on earth would he have killed him this weekend? Mm-hmm with all these other people around <laughs> why not just wait until he takes the boat to the mainland one day mm-hmm. and kill him quietly well no one knows that it could have been you but instead let's kill him when there's only like six people on the island or for that matter just spike <laughs> his drink with the drug that that willard took like that would have been much more well this is where it don't, don't, don't kill him this weekend right. it's gonna be so easy to figure out who did well, it well i mean yeah if this was an agatha christie they would have just used the the whatever that was that that engendered the heart attack like that would have been that would have been much more you know effective and you know 
I think it was amyl nitrate. Amyl nitrate, yes, that's what it is. Which, isn't that poppers? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's poppers. I'm almost no, sure. The 60th birthday party just got a lot more interesting, let me tell you. I told you, the man's... <laughs> I told you. No Susan wonder they're all like, like no, why no. is Jessica here? <laughs> like, I thought this was a men's weekend. <laughs> well, if you'll pardon the expression, it's clear that Jessica is his fat cat. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> I don't, I just, I'm so curious to know how she knows him because the, the episode, like, she meets Sir John in the helicopter on the way to the island, right? Because they've never met before. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't appear that she actually knows anybody in this guy's circle. It's right. such a weird thing to have. Anyway, I but, guess that's know. what happens when you're famous. You get invited to things with other famous people just because right. you're famous. I mean, look at Ellen being in the same, you know, box at the Super Bowl as George W. Bush. Yeah, I mean, don't even. Just don't yeah. even. Don't you know, even. I just think that there is something to that, though, that once you reach a certain level of uh, or a certain echelon of fame and wealth that you do start to connect with new kinds of people i mean clearly they're both like no i'm artistic. not i'm not saying that you don't connect with new kinds of people but i'm saying like that you'd get invited to some guy's private island that you don't even actually know right. which maybe does happen when you're rich but <laughs> let's talk uh, fashion teach mm, yes please let's do because i think what we need to address is the horror that is jessica's final costume in this episode when they're confronting sir john which actually the confrontation is really clever mm-hmm. we have all of the other people popping out of various doors and windows in the living room to sort of corner him in and they're all contributing to the story of how they know he did it mm-hmm. but at this point she is wearing this truly weird matching paisley skirt suit and it's just a horror show and i i just feel like we need to address that yeah, it does seem like a rare misstep from, from JB uh, and or her costumier. Like, I just feel like, you know, whoever was in charge of costumes that day kind of was falling asleep at the job. You know, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Were they thinking, well, we're on an island so we can just, you know, play with things a little bit. But it's like, no, especially compared to how dapper she was last week in My Johnny Was Over the Ocean. Like, you know, I, mm-hmm. as, as I gushed at length about, you know, that particular set of outfits, it's especially... You know, I mean, they could have gone with many other directions, given that they're in a lovely Mediterranean island. I really wish that they had, you know, been a little more. Oh, we could have Mediterraneanized her. Yes, exactly. That would have been nice. Yeah. I mean, good lord, there's like, you know, uh, what we might call like Spanish-esque music in the background the whole time. Like, I would think Mm -hmm. that they could have done at least some measure of costuming that would have matched that particular atmosphere. Which, by the way, I mean, speaking of the music, I actually did find it interesting that they equated Mediterranean with, like, the Spanish Mediterranean, as opposed to, say, the Italian, which I think, or even Greek, which I think would be more common. And so it's interesting that there's definitely the Spanish flavor yeah. to this that I would not necessarily have expected. Just because, I mean, I know I know that Spain is a Mediterranean country, but I'm just saying that typically when we're talking about pop culture, it's usually Italy and or, or, or Greek. Italy. Mm-hmm. Well... Yeah, and I think it's trading on, uh, I mean, Cesar Romero's Mm -hmm. character is Diego, so he's Spanish. And I think it's trading on his Mm -hmm. Hollywood career, often playing Spanish, or as you said, Latin lovers. Right, exactly. The the sort of, you know, the promiscuous, uh, and I I don't mean sexually, I just mean the sort of promiscuous ethnicity that is very common within Hollywood. And subsequently, there, if you, you know, if you're even vaguely, you know, ethnic, you can pretty much be anything. See also the many times that like Jewish people and Italians play each other. Yeah, yeah. Anybody with sort of I think dark features. Mm-hmm. 
like what we might call like in, in old parlance, like olive skin. You, know? you always say parlance. Do you know that instead of parlance? Yes, but I'm, I'm pretentious, <laughs> so. But um, his, uh, I mean, Cesar Romero was uh, Spanish and Cuban, right. so I guess that works. Yeah. So, I mean, overall, like I said, I really did enjoy this episode and I I, th- I enjoyed the grace notes like I said that I think that you always say grace notes too I noticed because I went back and listened to all of our podcasts you always say grace and grace notes in every single episode well that's my thing it's a it's called branding Bridget look it up <laughs> <laughs> anyway yeah now that I've been interrupted as I was in the middle of a thought because I do think that part of what makes the show so charming is the grace notes and it I think that you know because it gives us these Little bits that don't necessarily contribute to the actual murder mystery, but nevertheless make it enjoyable viewing. Like, that's part of why we enjoy watching it, is these other things that are not necessarily immediately relevant to what's happening murder-wise. But, I mean, while we're speaking of the murder, maybe I, I also just was struck by how unrepentant he was. Like, I mean, unrepentant with maybe just a, a touch of sadness, but he didn't seem particularly, like, morally troubled by his actions. <laughs> like, it didn't seem like, you know, someone who is killed his one of his good friends and now been caught at it it just didn't seem he really felt that guilty like he felt very justified in what he was doing yeah he has this great line when they're catching him too he says um is this where i draw a gun and say you're never gonna take me alive Mm. which of course you know he doesn't he just sort of quietly uh submits to them catching him yeah so I suppose even though he's not apologetic in any way that he's taken his really good friend's life, at least he's not um, denying it. You right. Know, he's willing to accept the consequences that he got caught. Yeah. No, I like. I agree with you. I like that. It's one of those nice moments of self-reflexiveness. Like, you know, if this was a, a different episode of Murder, She Wrote, like, he might have pulled a gun, as we'll see in next week's episode. Or, you know, try to tackle Jessica on, the sh- on a ship, like, which is what happened the last time. So, you know, he is pretty sanguine about the whole thing it seems like toward the end so we're kind of running out of time but to wrap up i mean i think this is a really fun episode i love the sort of cloistered on the island vibes the radio smashed you know the killer is among us um i think we get a really fun Mm -hmm. flavoring of the spanish the american the british and we're all gathered on this island together uh the french I, I think his first wife is the actor is French anyway, so it's just a it's a fun episode. Mm-hmm. I think as you say, it's a very Christie esque novel or I memes mean, episode. <laughs> I think that there are clear evocations of you know the Christie aesthetic, as you say, the mixture of different kinds of backgrounds, the the isolated location, and that I think that that's deliberate, and I think that's why it's such a fun episode to watch. That's probably a good place to stop. So for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm Bridget Keys, and I'm TJ West. And we'll see you next time. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs>